In the name of Jesus, amen. For the third and final time, Jesus predicts his suffering and his death and his resurrection to the disciples. And he says in extreme detail the things that are going to happen to him. And I'll read it again. This is, these are his words. He says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and there will be accomplished all the things that have been written through the prophets about the Son of Man. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after scourging, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. Uh, Jesus' words here are plain, they are obvious, and they are clear. They mean exactly what they say. But when the disciples hear it, the Bible says these words, it says that they did not understand any of these things, and this word was hidden from them, and they did not know the things that were spoken. And this emphasis three times, saying that they did not get it. And I don't understand that. I don't understand why they didn't understand Uh, especially reading this uh, the first time. Why didn't they understand and what is going on? It's not that they didn't understand the language or the grammar or the syntax or what Jesus is saying or even the meaning of the very words. They knew what crucifixion was. They knew all these things. These are the simplest words. What they didn't understand was why. And that was the heart of it. Because Jesus' words here offended them. They were foolish to them. They were contrary to all expectations. And maybe it could be that they thought Jesus was speaking in uh, some story or allegory or that this was um, a parable of some sort, uh, that he would figuratively be going through these things or something like that. I don't quite know what is in their minds, but there was something preventing them from taking Jesus' words at face value. They had some presupposition or reason that wouldn't allow them to accept what he plainly said. Um, But we do know this, that there is something going on in the background. And it's that they had an entirely different expectation of who the Christ would be and what the Messiah would do. Here's what they've been wanting. Uh, This is what they've been taught and hoping for. They wanted a Messiah to march to the temple, to kick out the Romans, to sit on the throne, to change all the laws, to legislate some morality there, to bring economic prosperity and rule the world. That's what they wanted. What what they wanted was an insurrection, but a real one, not like January 6th or something. They wanted something actual. He goes in there, kicks them out, and takes over. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the government and then establish his own political kingdom. They wanted a political kingdom. Uh, We we see this also in John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the multitudes and then they want to make him king by force is what it says. And they they want Jesus there so that he makes up for all their past troubles. And this is why James and John, they ask Jesus, can we sit on your right and your left? They're not talking about the kingdom of heaven. They are thinking of a temporal kingdom, an earthly kingdom. They knew that that's what they wanted. And they knew that the way you establish a kingdom is not by getting mocked and spit upon and beaten 
and flogged and stripped naked and then being crucified. That is the exact opposite of what they wanted for the Messiah. They, in fact, they probably wanted the Messiah to do those things to their enemies. But that's not what the Messiah would be receiving. That's not what was in their minds. So those two things go together. They're great and high expectations for a kingdom that, that they will live in. And their great disappointment at his death. And these two go hand in hand. Now, I, I wish I could say that it was only the Jews who believed this. But sadly, there is a, um, this Jewish opinion about a political kingdom uh, which has crept into nearly every church in the United States uh, in American evangelicalism. Uh, most notably, in the 1800s, there was a British man by the name of John Nelson Darby uh, who was a pastor in the Plymouth Brethren movement and he is oftentimes referred to and called the father of dispensationalism. Um, what you might know as pre-tribulation rapture theology or all of that. Uh, something that I've actually been addressing in the uh, Sunday morning Bible study for uh, over a month now. Uh, this teaching spread like wildfire all in Canada and in the United States. And especially because of a certain book that was printed called the Schofield Reference Bible. Once that was made widely available and it was changed over the years, this became, uh, this teaching was spread throughout. And this is what guys today, like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, um, names like uh, Kenneth Copeland, uh, the Left Behind series, Tim LaHaye, Jim Jenkins, so on and so forth, uh, that is what they're teaching. Um, I'm ashamed to say that some pastors are in our own uh, synod and district are teaching these sort of things. Um, this teaching, again, is incredibly complex and complicated. There's a lot of different components to dispensationalism. Um, it says, for, there's just some features of it, uh, that there's going to be two future returns of Christ. One is going to be invisible and secret, and where he will then rapture all the true Christians. And then there will be a second or third uh, coming, uh, which is a visible and a public coming of the Lord, uh, that there's going to be something uh, like the rapture, seven-year tribulation, uh, then the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Uh, there's going to be a mass conversion of the Jews, uh, and there, uh, when that temple is rebuilt, then Christ will come and he will then establish a political kingdom and the church will be prosperous and successful throughout the entire world. And it will rule. Um, dispensationalism is behind so much of our own country's support for the nation of Israel today. Uh, this is behind the American evangelicals sort of obsession with politics and legislation even to today. And the ultimate reason for evangelical support for Israel is so that uh, Israel would have independence and be a nation and so that they could then rebuild the temple. Why? Why would they rebuild the temple? So that the Lord could return. And if he then returns, then he ushers in his kingdom and then the world is back to what it should be. That's the point. Now, I, again, I'm going through all of these things in the Bible study uh, it would be good if you're there. There are plenty of books and podcasts and recordings and videos uh, of this, not only from me, but other Lutheran pastors 
uh, and other pastors of other denominations, um, and the majority of church history, which attests uh, to, um, actually, which, which is against this uh, teaching. Um, but I want to get to the heart of the issue, which is this. Why is it that John Nelson Darby uh, insists that Jesus must come back and set up this earthly kingdom? It is because he, like the Jews, believed that all the Old Testament prophecies were not about Christ and his church, which he saves by grace through faith alone in his blood, but that these Old Testament prophecies were about the Jews and a physical, political, earthly kingdom ruled by a Messiah. And so John Nelson Darby says that when Christ came in his first coming, he actually offered this kingdom to the Jews. He actually tried to set it up. That was his intent. His, his full intention and motivation in his first coming was to do this the very first time. However, instead of setting up that kingdom, he, he got crucified instead. He died. He was murdered. So plan A was set up the kingdom today. Plan B is come back sometime in the future and do it. That is the main point of that theology. Jesus tried to set up a kingdom, kingdom and he wasn't able to. And to put it as bluntly as possible here, as clearly as possible, he came to establish a kingdom and he failed. He wasn't able to. And so now we have to wait one day and all of our works and all of our votes and all of our uh, strivings have to be towards this end for this goal. This is so profoundly wrong. It is so wrong. The disciples didn't see it. The Jews still don't see it. And many Christians today don't see it. Christ did not come to establish an earthly political kingdom. The Pharisees, look, the Pharisees flat out asked Jesus when he would establish the kingdom of God. They said, well, look, you're the Messiah. Well, uh, then, then when are you going to do this? And then his response to them is the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Present tense. He's talking about it in that moment. And he's talking about himself. He's talking about his preaching. The forgiveness of sins is what he's talking about. Later on, before he's crucified, Pilate goes up to him and asks him the same question. and says, look, I hear that you're a king. So tell me, where do you come from? Where, where's your kingdom? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. He didn't come to establish a kingdom like Pilate or Caesar. Even more, his crucifixion was not a hindrance to the kingdom. But in fact, his crucifixion was the very means by which he established his kingdom. The, the cross wasn't a mishap or a failure along the way. The cross was his plan the entire time. The gospel lesson that you heard for today, Jesus himself says these words. He says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem 
and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Christ's suffering and death announced long ago by the prophets is what would, would come to pass. Christ didn't suffer and die because his foes tricked him or overpowered him. He suffered and died because he ordained it long ago. Matthew uh, chapter 26, verse 39, Jesus tells Peter not to fight against the soldiers. Remember, uh, Peter draws his sword. He cuts off Malchus's ear, uh, trying to protect Jesus. And then Jesus rebukes him and says, don't do that. And then he pulls Peter aside and he says to him, do you think I cannot appeal to my father in heaven? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But if I did that, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? His arrest, his betrayal was necessary, he says. He could have stopped it at any moment and then he did not. He chose not to. And then again, after he rose from the dead, the disciples are on the road to Emmaus and they're hanging their heads and then they're in despair. They said, we had hoped that this guy, this Jesus, would have been the Messiah. We had hoped that he would have redeemed us. And then Jesus looks at them and he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Even more, Isaiah chapter 53 doesn't say that Jesus' crucifixion is some like, unfortunate event that, that it throws a wrench in the whole plan and now there's this parenthetical time in history uh, for the Gentiles or something like this. Rather, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 says this very clearly in these words. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, Jesus. It was the will of God to crush Jesus his only begotten son, and he has put him to grief. Uh, later on, that verse then says that the reason he would be crushed uh, was to atone for our guilt, for our sins. Again, Jesus confirms these words in John chapter 12. These are days, days before he dies. Jesus is there before he goes to Jerusalem, and he says these words. He says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The cross wasn't a failure, it was his plan. I, I can go on and on and on and just rattle off dozens of verses. I mean, we'll sit here reading the entire scriptures looking at this again and again. But, but I'm going to quote just one more verse here. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is Peter standing before the Jews who crucified Jesus, who actually witnessed this very event and were guilty of it, calling out for his crucifixion. Peter preaches to them, and right in the middle of the sermon, he says these words. He goes, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite 
plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I, I don't know a clearer verse than that when it comes to the purpose and the, the, the will of God in the life of Christ. The disciples and the Jews and many others reject Jesus because they see his suffering and his crucifixion as something in the way. And so they hold on to some hope of a future political kingdom, an earthly government, a glorious day that we have not seen yet, but we will see in the future. Um, By the way, just a footnote here. uh, I think texts and sermons like these are so timely, especially on years like this, uh, during election years especially, Because so many people are worried, Uh, so many people I've talked to are worried and anxious and they are discouraged, they're hanging their heads and fretting over the condition, the awful condition of the United States of America. And granted, there is a lot wrong with this country. And about every four years, there's also this hope that somehow we're going to turn this all around and we're going to make it better. And every four years, it never happens. (laughs) And it happens again and again and again. It is tragic. I mean, this is, it's it's pitiful to see. I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but there is no promise in the scriptures that this nation will be saved, that it would endure, that it won't fall and crumble to dust and ashes. There's nothing in the scriptures that say this. There won't be a golden age here or in Jerusalem or anywhere else. I know, I, know, I know I sound pessimistic and depressing, but I am telling you the truth, which is hard to bear and hard to hear, hard to say even. But if you're holding out for some miraculous sort of turnaround here, maybe this is the year. This is our year. We're going to win this back and there's going to be a big change here. If you're holding on to some miraculous turnaround, you're holding on to something that God simply has not promised you. There is no promise that the United States will last forever, or any nation for that matter. In fact, uh, there's every indication that it's going to go the way of a thousand countries before it. So, again, I'm not saying don't try, I'm not saying give up and, and hang your heads or don't you know, teach your kids. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying don't hold on to promises that the Lord hasn't made. And instead of doing that, hold on to the promises that the Lord has made. Consider the things that he has said, which is so clear and significantly more beautiful than this pie-in-the-sky dream. That means, it means this, that the chief thing you need to know is this. That Jesus has come and given us something far greater than a political victory far greater than some conservative revival, far greater than an earthly kingdom, far greater than all the riches and pleasures of this world. For those who have ears to hear, Jesus opens your eyes right now and gives you the sight to see his kingdom, which he won by his own blood. What Jesus came to do is far more glorious than we could have ever, ever imagined. Jesus came to to do something that we would not even dare to ask him for. 
Consider that. Never in a million years would I ever walk up to the throne of God where he is and say, Here, Jesus, take my shame and take my guilt and take all of my sins and put them on yourself and then die for me. And then open up your veins and pour out every ounce of blood that you have. Gasp and choke on your own blood uh, as you're gasping for air in the end. Endure the worst pain that any man has felt and suffer God's wrath alone. And then in exchange for all of that that I've done for you, you give me everything you have. You give me heaven. You give me life. You give me salvation and eternal bliss. You give me a crown. You give me your innocence and blessedness. You forgive all of my sins for free. Never bring them up again. Separate them from me as far as the east is from the west. Drown them in the depth of the ocean and remember them never again. I would have never even dared to propose that or think it. I I wouldn't ask that of another human being, let alone God. And yet what we wouldn't have even dared to ask for is everything he has done. It's what he came up with. That was his idea. That, that, That was his plan for salvation. People who are obsessed with political victory and earthly comfort and economic success will never rejoice in this kingdom. When Jesus established his kingdom, the disciples ran away and they abandoned him. They weren't there. And we will too if our goal in life is focused on politics and money and pleasure. But God has come and opened our eyes to see what he has done. The kingdom Jesus established is one that can't be taken away by corrupt politicians or tyrannical laws or insane dictators. And the kingdom that Jesus established isn't one that is ruled through constant anxiety and worry and stress about the future of things that could happen, things that might happen, uh, what's good, what's bad, so on and so forth. The kingdom that God sets before you is the one where Christ the Lord, the King of Kings, does not send you off to suffer and die for him but one where he suffers and bleeds and dies for you, for all the citizens of that kingdom. And the wealth and glory of every government could never give you what you really need the most. What you really need the most is not a good country, is not a better economy. You you actually do not need those things. You need peace with God. That is the chief concern. That is the main thing you need in your life. Whether you think it or not, the main thing you need in your life is peace with God. You need a peaceful mind and a clean conscience. You need the forgiveness for all of your sins. You need a heart full of joy and peace and hope. And all these things the world can't give you in their riches is what Jesus gave you in his poverty. The preaching of the cross, the forgiveness of sins, baptism into his name, his body and his blood, the crown of salvation, that is his kingdom. And Jesus doesn't give these things to you in spite of his suffering and death, but through them. It's on account of them. So dear saints, don't look to some government or a piece of land somewhere on a map or any kingdom or ruler to save you or give you what you need. Tongues will pass away. Prophecies 
will fade, knowledge will come to an end, and every kingdom of this world will crumble and turn to dust, including this one. But the kingdom of God will endure forever. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, and the church will not die. And the kingdom Jesus gives you is not something you might see in the future one day, but it is what you see right now in faith, that the Lord looks upon you with favor and has forgiven all your sins and blesses you and lifts his countenance upon you and gives you peace. The very thing Jesus came to give you is the very thing you now have. You don't need to wait for it. You have it, and it is yours. Dear saints, may God bless you uh, this Lenten season as this pre-Lenten time comes to a close, uh, as we begin the Lenten season this Ash Wednesday. And may he open your eyes to see the kingdom that he won for you and placed you in, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death, that you may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he's risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. That is most certainly true. Dear saints, keep this in mind, treasure it in your heart. This is all you have and this is all you need. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.